What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No it was three days before Christmas, and all around the town of Oakley in Utah, families prepared for the upcoming festivities. The surrounding mountains were draped in a blanket of snow, and puffs of smoke rose from the log cabins dotted amongst the valley. This might sound like the beginning of a typical Christmas story, but instead of glistening snowflakes and yuletide cheer, what follows is a tale of Christmas horror. This is Monsters. Twenty-year-old Linnae and sixteen-year-old Trish loved Christmas time. Every year, they traveled from their home in Salt Lake City to Weber Canyon near Oakley in Utah. Their parents, Kay and Rolf Teed, owned a cabin in the mountains and their whole extended family would come together to spend a couple of weeks playing board games, drinking eggnog, adventuring on their snowmobiles, and sharing their favorite Christmas traditions. What the family loved most about their cabin was that once the snow set in, it became the winter version of an island paradise. It was located more than two miles from the closest road, which meant it was cut off from the outside world during the height of the season. In the wintertime, the cabin could only be reached by snowmobile, so when the family arrived, they would park their vehicle at a parking lot on the road and ride up to their cozy oasis. The isolation might have put others off, but for Kay and Rolf, it was exactly what made them decide to purchase the cabin in the first place. Their daughters loved it too. Lene and Trish weren't like other siblings. There were no fights or accusations of favoritism. They genuinely enjoyed each other's company and always seemed to be calmer when the other was in sight. Strangers would often say the girls were more like twins and they both felt that their connection was a bond that went beyond mere words. Their favorite time of year was the lead-up to Christmas. Not because of the presents and festivities, but because they got to spend uninterrupted time in their favorite place. Lene always spoke about how the sound of the river and the birds made the cabin feel like heaven on earth. It's no wonder that the family referred to their little slice of paradise as Teed's tranquility. It was the one place that Rolf and Kay felt truly at ease without the tendrils of the outside world disturbing their precious family memories. But in 1990, the isolation which had first made them fall in love with the cabin became their downfall. Rolf, Kay, and their daughters arrived at the cabin a few days before the rest of their family were due to arrive. 
They were joined by Kay's mother, Beth, who had just turned 70 and spent every Christmas with them at the cabin. Beth had recently lost a significant amount of her sight, so she needed extra help getting around. Together, the family worked hard to get the space cleaned up from its summer hibernation and ready for the approaching celebrations. Once the cleaning was done, they put up the Christmas tree, strung tinsel from the rafters, and hung their stockings over the fireplace mantle. It was shaping up to be the picture-perfect family Christmas. On December 22nd, the family made what they hoped would be the last trip into town until the new year. They needed a few additional supplies, and the girls wanted to pick up some last-minute gifts to go under the tree. They didn't plan to be gone for long, but it was always difficult to estimate exactly how long it would take for the snowmobiles to cut through the thick snow. Rolf was particularly cautious when it came to his girls, and he reminded them to take their time and not to rush. Once the group reached town, they spent a couple of hours finding what they needed. By 3 p.m., they were ready to head home, so Lene, Beth, and Kay set off together on one snowmobile. It took Rolf and Trish a couple of minutes to pack their purchases onto the other snowmobile, and then they headed back towards the cabin. It was a bitterly cold winter, and Lene's fingers felt like they were frozen solid from the journey into town. As soon as the snowmobile stopped outside of the garage of the two-story building, she jumped off and ran inside to run her hands under some warm water. She promised that once she had some feeling back in her fingers, she would come and help her mother and grandmother unload the bags. Just as Lene reached the top of the stairs which led to the kitchen, she noticed a flash of movement behind the fridge. She immediately thought that one of her cousins must have arrived early and was hiding out to give her a fright. But then, a frizzy-haired stranger wearing a gray sweatshirt came into view. In his hand, he held a pistol, and it was aimed directly at Lene's face. Before she could even register what was happening or warn the others what was going on, Kay and Beth walked up the stairs and into the kitchen behind her. When her mother saw a stranger pointing a pistol at her daughter, she yelled, quote, What is it you want? Why are you here? I'll give you anything. As soon as the words had left her mouth, there was the sound of a gunshot. When Lene looked around, she realized that there was a second man inside the cabin. He was wearing thick Coke bottle glasses, and he was standing in the doorway of one of the upstairs bedrooms. He hadn't even hesitated before shooting Kay right where she stood. Lene had looked over her shoulder and noticed the man in the same second that he shot her grandmother in the head. She watched as blood splattered over the walls and ceiling, and Beth slumped to the floor. Instinctively, Lene knew that her mother and grandmother were dead. She also realized that her own death was only moments away. She closed her eyes and whispered a prayer for the monster in her kitchen to not shoot her as well. Then she remembered that her father and sister would be arriving back at the cabin soon. She couldn't let them walk up the stairs and into the same situation as Kay and Beth, so she tried to convince the men to take whatever they wanted and leave. She even showed them where her father's keys were so they could take the car which was parked by the main road. But the men didn't seem interested in getting away. It was almost as if they knew more people would be arriving soon and they wanted to wait for them. All Lene could do was pray while the man in the gray sweatshirt held her around the neck and kept his pistol pressed into her back. When he heard her desperate whispers, he told her there was no point in begging for God to save her because he worshipped the devil and God would be no use to her now. Meanwhile, the second intruder dragged Kay and Beth's bodies out of the kitchen and into the living room. 
He laid them side by side as blood poured from where they had been shot in the head. After a few moments, he dragged them through the side door and onto the snow-covered balcony outside. Then he covered them with blankets and came back into the warmth of the cabin to wait for his next victims to show up. A couple of minutes later, Linnae was forced to watch helplessly as her little sister and her father arrived back at the cabin. In that moment, she knew they were completely alone. There was no one who would hear their screams, no neighbors who would come to check up on them, and no passing cars who might notice anything out of the ordinary. The isolation of the cabin had once seemed so appealing, but now it felt like its greatest weakness. The second Trish and Rolf pulled into the garage, one of the men jumped out and pointed a gun directly at them. He was wearing a ski mask, and he demanded that they go up the stairs into the house, at the same time as saying, quote, Don't move, don't move. Don't move, don't do anything. The transition from tranquil snowy mountains to the bloodbath inside the cabin was jarring for Rolf and Trish. As they reached the top of the stairs, Rolf made eye contact with Lene and tried to read everything she was telling him in that one look. Fear, sadness, confusion. He didn't know that his wife and mother-in-law were already dead, but they were nowhere to be seen. There was no sounds coming from the rest of the cabin, and there was blood everywhere. It didn't take a genius to figure out something terrible had happened in the few short minutes before he had arrived. Rolf immediately put himself between Trish and the men and tried to reach out to Lene to protect her, but the two intruders had the advantage. One of the men asked Rolf if he had any money and he handed over what was left in his pockets. Then the intruder who was holding Lene ordered the guy in the Coke bottle glasses to shoot Rolf in the head. The man cocked his gun and pointed it towards Rolf, but he refused to pull the trigger. He had just killed two women in cold blood, but now he was refusing to kill Rolf. Time seemed to stand still. Rolf, Trish, and Lene silently prayed for the universe to intervene. But then the guy holding Lene pulled the hammer on his pistol, pointed it at Rolf, and squeezed the trigger. Miraculously, the gun misfired, so the intruder pulled the hammer back again and squeezed the trigger. The weapon misfired a second time. Maybe the universe was listening. Except Rolf would not be so lucky the third time. That time, the bullet fired out of the weapon, directly into Rolf's face, and he crumpled to the floor. Lene and Trish watched the whole thing happen from just a few feet away. Lene had watched her mother, her grandmother, and her father die in the span of a few minutes, and she knew that she and her sister would be next. No prayers were going to save them now. In the aftermath of Rolf being shot, the two men whispered about what to do next. The whole situation was horrific and terrifying, but it was about to get worse. One of the men went down to the garage, and when he returned, he was holding a canister of gasoline. He walked over to Rolf's body and poured the fuel all over him before spraying it through the inside of the cabin. Then he lit a match and tossed it onto a puddle of fuel. As smoke and flames started to fill the room, the second man shuffled the girls downstairs. He ordered them to sit on separate snowmobiles while he loaded some gifts they had stolen from under the Teed's Christmas tree. When the second intruder joined them, they forced Lene and Trish to drive away from the cabin at gunpoint, while the evidence of what they had done went up in flames behind them. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Trish and Lene had never felt more alone. As the two snowmobiles sped away from the fire, they were each racking their brains to try and come up with a way they could escape. Maybe they could wreck the snowmobiles by driving into a ditch. Or maybe they could try to pull a maneuver they used to love doing to their cousins where they would take a sharp turn and throw the passenger off the back of the snowmobile. But each of the girls quickly realized that no matter what they tried, they would only be saving themselves and that meant leaving their sister behind. Trish and Lene both knew they could never do that. As they neared the main road, there was a glimmer of hope when the girls spotted someone they knew. Randy Zorn was their father's brother, which made him their uncle. He had just arrived in town for the holidays, and when they spotted him, he was standing close enough to recognize his nieces. When he realized that the speeding snowmobiles were being driven by Trish and Lene, he figured they must be showing off to the friends they were riding with. But when he waved, they completely ignored him. One of the girls even looked the other way. Once they had passed Randy, the two men forced the girls to pull the snowmobiles into the parking lot where the family vehicle was parked. They used the keys Lene had given them earlier to unlock the Lincoln and they shoved the girls into the back seat before racing out of the parking lot. As the car drove back past where Randy was standing, he waved again, and this time he called out for the vehicle to stop. But the vehicle didn't slow down and his nieces completely ignored him yet again. That's when Randy realized something wasn't right. There was no way the girls hadn't seen him and it was totally out of character for them to ignore him, not once, but twice. He didn't have to think about the strangeness of the incident for long because a few moments after the Lincoln disappeared from sight, Randy noticed another snowmobile coming from the direction of the cabin. The person in control of the vehicle was unrecognizable and all he could make out was that they weren't wearing gloves, a coat, a hat, or any warm clothing. As the vehicle buzzed closer to where he was standing, he could see the man on the snowmobile was also covered in blood. It was only when it came to a complete stop that Randy realized who he was looking at. His own brother, Rolf Teed. Call it a Christmas miracle, divine intervention, or an example of the strength of the human body. Whatever you like to believe. It's hard to comprehend how Rolf had survived being shot in the face, burned alive, and then exposed to the elements in the middle of a Utah winter. By the time Rolf crossed paths with Randy at the roadside, the blood on his face had frozen into blood sickles and all he could say was, quote, I've been shot, my wife has been killed, and my daughters have been kidnapped. Randy jumped into action. It was clear that Rolf was seriously injured and needed urgent medical attention, but getting an ambulance to their location wasn't going to happen in minutes. He also knew that if he didn't act fast, the Lincoln would get away with both of his nieces inside. Randy helped Rolf into the backseat of his car, which happened to be parked in the same lot that the attackers had just left. Then he pulled out onto the road and sped in the same direction the Lincoln had gone a few minutes before. It was 1990, so most people didn't carry cell phones, and even when they did, the cell reception in the canyon was unreliable at best. Thankfully, Randy did have a phone, and he dialed and redialed 911 again and again until the call connected. He filled the officers in on what he knew about the cabin and his kidnapped nieces, and then he spotted the Lincoln up ahead on the road. 
Just as he was about to give the 911 dispatcher the exact location of where he had seen the vehicle turning, the call dropped out. Randy was faced with a terrible choice. Stop and try to make another 911 call, which meant letting the vehicle get away, or chase after the Lincoln and try to catch the men on his own. Randy decided to stop and call for help. Thankfully, there was a gas station a few hundred meters away, and Randy skidded into the forecourt, jumped out of his car, and used a payphone to call 911 back. He relayed the information about where the Lincoln was headed, and he demanded the police send a helicopter to help with the search. Within minutes, the Summit County Sheriff's Department had redirected all of their vehicles to join the pursuit. Meanwhile, in the car, the two girls noticed the intruders becoming more and more agitated as the vehicle sped along the snowy roads. The car's tires struggled to maintain traction on the icy surface, and they skidded around each corner. But when one of the men saw a police cruiser turn around and begin to follow them, his driving became even more erratic. He took the corners more sharply, and their speed increased to over 90 miles an hour, well over 140 kilometers an hour. When they took a turn towards the canyon too hard, the Lincoln reached its limit and skidded across the road and over the side of an embankment. Thankfully, the drop was only a few feet, and by the time the passengers realized what had happened, the officers who were following them had surrounded the vehicle with their weapons drawn. Lene and Trish were not significantly injured in the crash, and they managed to make their way out of the back doors of the Lincoln. They held each other's hand as they yelled that they were hostages and not to shoot. The girls were taken up the road to safety while officers closed in on the vehicle. They yelled at the men to surrender, and a few minutes later, both intruders were dragged out of the vehicle without incident. As the men were being cuffed, Lene screamed out, quote, Kill them! They just killed my mom, my dad, and my grams. Kill them! Shoot them now! Kill them! A reasonable reaction based on the horrors she had recently witnessed. The two men were later identified as 21-year-old Edward Stephen Deli and 25-year-old Vaughn Lester Taylor. While the men were being taken into custody, the girls were told their father had survived the shooting, but just barely. He had been airlifted to the hospital in critical condition. When the scene of the car accident was secure and the girls were safely reunited with their uncle, investigators made their way up to the isolated cabin. It was only as they walked into the garage that they noticed the smell of smoke. When they looked up the stairs, they realized the house was on fire. Up until that moment, investigators only received fragmented reports from the girls about what had happened in the cabin, and a fire wasn't nearly the worst of what they had said. Once the flames were extinguished, crime scene investigators moved methodically through the cabin collecting evidence. Much of the second story of the home had been destroyed by fire and smoke. Despite the destruction, they were able to make out a trail of blood leading from the living room out onto the balcony. That's where they found the bodies of Beth and Kay still covered by blankets and under a light dusting of snow. The scene was made even more chilling thanks to the fact that blood from the bodies had seeped through the living room carpet, between the cracks in the floorboards, and had frozen into creepy icicles which hung from the ceiling in the basement below. The garage was mostly intact aside from an 18-inch puddle of fresh blood. Fresh except for the fact that it was frozen solid thanks to the sub-zero temperatures that day. On the stairwell, officers found multiple bullet holes in the walls as well as bloody handprints smeared across the surface. The scene presented a horrifying contrast. 
On one hand, there was the cozy cabin warmly adorned with Christmas decorations and cheerful signs of the upcoming festivities. On the other hand, there was blood, bodies, and ash. The twinkling lights of the Christmas tree and the festive ornaments seemed out of place in the midst of such horror. Officers noticed that the gifts under the tree had been opened and on top of the coffee table was a VHS camcorder and some tapes, undoubtedly filled with videos capturing moments of joy. It was almost like the Christmas celebrations had been frozen in time, right when two monsters decided it was the perfect moment to rain terror down on the Teed family. When the crime scene investigation was complete, Edward and Von Lester were each charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted first-degree murder, and two counts of aggravated kidnapping. They were also charged with aggravated assault, theft, arson, and failure to heed a police signal to stop. The attack against the Teed family was not even close to Edward and Von Lester's first taste of violence. In fact, the previous crimes they had been convicted of should have meant they wouldn't have been free to carry out this attack in the first place. Von Lester had once been a pretty normal kid according to those who knew him. He came from a decent family and had the privilege of a good education. But somewhere along the line, he turned his back on everything that was going for him and began to get into trouble with the law. His offenses progressively became more serious until he was sentenced to 15 years in prison for aggravated burglary. Edward had a pretty similar story. Average childhood, successful parents, and then getting caught up in the wrong crowd. Just 12 months before the murder, he was sentenced to five years in prison for arson. Despite the seriousness of their crimes and the lengths of their sentences, both men were paroled and released to the Orange Street Community Correction Center in Salt Lake City. It was basically a halfway house to support inmates to get back on their feet after incarceration. That's where Von Lester and Edward met for the first time. The conditions of their parole meant that they had to stay at the halfway house until they found jobs. It'll come as no surprise that people like Von Lester and Edward had no intention of finding meaningful employment. The only thing that appealed to them about the halfway house they were paroled to was just how easy it was to leave. And on December 14th, they did just that. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The snow was thick on the ground when the men told their parole officer they were going out for job interviews. There were no double checks and no one accompanied them. They simply walked out the door and never came back. Once they were free, they hitchhiked up to Weber Canyon and began robbing vacant cabins. At some point, they decided stealing wasn't thrilling enough and they needed a bigger rush, so they began to search for a place that was occupied. That's when they came across the Teed cabin. Many families arrive in the area after Christmas, but the Teeds always came before. The two men watched as Beth, Kay, Rolf, and the girls came and went while they got the cabin ready for Christmas. When they left on their snowmobiles that day, Edward and Von Lester decided it was the perfect time to strike. This time, they didn't want to steal. They wanted blood. 
Staking out the teed cabin explained why Lene felt they knew their dad and sister would be arriving soon when she tried to convince the men to leave. The women hadn't interrupted a robbery like they thought. They had walked straight into a trap. Edward would later tell authorities that Von Lester had made a phone call from one of the cabins they robbed. He had told a fellow inmate at the halfway house that they not only planned to rob some cabins and steal a car to get out of the country, they also wanted to kill. Despite both Edward and Von Lester being caught red-handed with two hostages, they initially tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. When that didn't work, they changed tack. In many cases where there are two perpetrators, one will turn on the other to get a lighter sentence. But in this case, neither man implicated the other more than themselves. That's not to say they took responsibility for what they had done. No, they simply didn't answer questions about who had done what. From the perspective of Lene and Trish, the two men were equal participants in the crime. Lene commented, quote, Vaughn Taylor and Ed Deli very much each took their own separate part in murdering my mom and Grams. I do not feel one man in any way, shape, or form was more responsible. But from a legal perspective, officials had to determine who had pulled the trigger for each victim. Otherwise, each man could simply say the other one did it. Unlike in more recent times where perpetrators are considered equally culpable when a crime is committed, in those days it came down to who exactly did what. Because the men refused to say what had happened, it was left to investigators to painstakingly piece together the evidence and come up with a likely sequence of events. Not just so they knew what had happened, but also to accurately define who had done what. That's when officers reviewed the videotapes which they had found on the coffee table inside the cabin. Many families will remember the joy of filming home videos which capture the essence of happy times, laughter, and even the mundane moments of life. But for the Teed family, the tapes from inside the cabin would serve a different purpose. The footage captured moments which were altogether more disturbing. The cabin was all set up for Christmas festivities with the tree, lights, and stockings, and there was someone sitting under the tree unwrapping presents. But this wasn't one of the Teed family members cracking into their gifts before the big day. I don't know. Okay. I don't think I got all of this. I don't know. How am I supposed to find out? What is it? Baseball card. Let's see a couple of them. Show them this way. Turn them this way. The footage showed Von Lester gleefully ripping open the gifts of the people he was about to murder while he waited for them to arrive home. Even though the footage didn't show the murders, it did prove that there was an aspect of premeditation to the crime. If they only intended to rob the cabin, why would Edward and Von Lester take their time going through the gifts and then hang out there for hours waiting for its occupants to return? The tapes were important because if premeditation was involved, then it implied that the men were equally culpable of the murders. The surviving victims of the attack agreed. Each man was as responsible as the other. Each man could have stopped what happened, and each man chose not to. But when Ed and Von Lester's lawyers caught wind of the videotapes, they made it very clear that the other man was more responsible than their own client. 
that was where the killer's paths diverged. In May of 1991, Von Lester pleaded guilty to the murders of Beth and Kay. In exchange for his guilty plea, the other charges against him were dropped. He opted to go before a jury to determine his sentence rather than a judge. Von Lester testified in his own defense that he didn't deserve the death penalty, but when he was cross-examined, he had conveniently forgotten many of the critical aspects of the crime, including forgetting whether he had actually pulled the trigger. He recalled holding the gun and pointing it at his victims, but not shooting. He said, quote, It happened so quick. I don't know. Right. The jury were unconvinced by his performance and his clear lack of remorse. Von Lester Taylor was ultimately sentenced to death, on both counts. Edward Deli, on the other hand, refused to admit any guilt for the murders. He claimed that Von Lester had done all the shooting and was the instigator of the whole plot to rob the cabins and kill its occupants. Somehow, Ed had managed to find a lawyer who was basically a less murderous version of himself. He took an aggressive approach to all of the witnesses, even the Teed sisters. Trish was just 16 years old when she took the stand. When it came time to testify about the horrific events they had experienced, Edward's lawyer systematically dismembered both of the girls' statements sentence by sentence. He questioned everything they said and repeated the same questions over and over in an attempt to bait them into fumbling. But the true shock of their time on the stand was when he got around to talking about the murder weapon. He asked each of the girls to pick up the very same gun which had been used to remove their mother and their grandmother from their lives. Then he made them demonstrate to the courtroom how the killers had held the weapon, which way they had fired, and where they were looking when the bullets were fired. The whole performance was an attempt to make the girls look like unreliable witnesses and to call their recollection of the murders into question. If the trial had a scorecard and that was one point to Edward... What happened next made the tally equal. When Rolf walked into the courtroom to testify, Edward's carefully crafted poker face slipped for a moment. It turns out that no one had told Edward that Rolf had survived his attack. Trish later commented, quote, I remember watching the look on Deli's face as he came in seeing my father, and it was very apparent to me that he did not know my father had survived, and the look on his face was just priceless, like he had been defeated. My dad survived. We won. Rolf's survival is a testament to human strength. He only survived the gunshot because the men had loaded the weapon with birdshot. Birdshot can be fatal especially when fired at close range or if it hits vital areas such as the head, neck, or chest. But somehow, the angle and sequence of events meant Rolf didn't die, though he was seriously injured and bleeding profusely. He testified that he remembered being shot and that when he realized he was still alive, he decided the best thing to do was to play dead. He didn't move a muscle while the men doused him in gasoline or even when they set light directly to his clothing. But the second the men left on the snowmobiles, he dragged himself to a shower and stood under the faucet until the flames were extinguished. Despite being critically injured, he willed himself to chase after the men who had taken his daughters. He was unable to see thanks to the shot to his face, and he relied on instinct to take him toward the road where Randy found him. Rolf's actions were nothing short of heroic. There were additional revelations for Randy on the stand as well. He heard how Linnae and Trish had both chosen to ignore him that day because they figured if Von Lester and Edward realized they knew him and that he might go for help, then the men might have killed him as well. 
their actions may well have saved Randy's life. One of the girls commented, quote, I knew his life could be in danger. I knew if these men knew Randy was our uncle there that they would have killed him. The cruel and brazen way that Edward's lawyer treated the victims worked in convincing the jury that the story of the shooting didn't add up. Edward Deli was found guilty, but only of second-degree murder. His ruling meant the death penalty was off the table. It was only later that the family learned a single juror had determined Edward's fate. One juror who couldn't be swayed from their position that Edward's actions weren't as bad as first-degree murder. Ultimately, the other members of the panel decided that finding him guilty of second-degree murder was a better option than a hung jury and a mistrial. In the years since the two men were incarcerated, Von Lester has repeatedly appealed his conviction and is sentenced to the Utah Supreme Court. He claims that the evidence from the scene proves it was Edwards' 44 caliber Magnum gun which killed Beth and Kay, not his 38 caliber special. He later asserted that it was a surprise to him that Edwards started shooting because he thought they were just going to rob the cabin. When that defense didn't work with the Supreme Court the first two times, he blamed his actions on brain damage, which he claims he wasn't allowed to talk about during the trial. That third appeal was also denied. Then, in 2020, nearly 30 years after the murder, a federal court judge overturned Von Lester's death sentence because he was apparently not given an adequate defense from his public defender. According to the judge, Von Lester's lawyer gave inexcusably uninformed advice, which led him to enter a guilty plea. The judge said that the public defender did not conduct an investigation into the state's evidence, did not consult any experts, and didn't visit the scene of the crime. His girlfriend worked for him as a paralegal on the case, and she didn't explore any further evidence than what the lawyer already had. The judge stated in her ruling that the public defender indicated to his client that he thought the state's case was indisputable. She noted that the lawyer put his case together in less than a day with just three witnesses. Thankfully, one year after the death sentence was overturned, a federal appeals court reinstated the conviction and the sentence and Von Lester was put back on death row. In 2001, Edward wrote a letter to Linnae saying he was not the same person who had murdered her mother and grandmother and attempted to murder her father. She spent more than 10 years considering his words and how much she was letting her hatred of him have a hold over her life. She gracefully forgave Edward, but made sure to insist that she had not forgiven what he did and she doesn't believe he should ever be able to walk free. In the years after the murders, the remaining members of the Teed family have rebuilt the cabin. They refuse to let what Edward and Von Lester put them through erase all of the good memories they made as a family in a place they love so much. Those two monsters robbed them of so much, and they wouldn't allow them to take anything more. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing.
If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.